0: You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from John 1, 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said. After me comes a man who ranks before me, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Last week, we started a brand new sermon series. We're going through the gospel of John, and the the title of this sermon series is called That You May Believe, which is conveniently the purpose of the entirety of John's gospel. The whole reason, in fact, John helps us out here by keying us into this. At the very end of his book, in John 20, verse 31, he tells us exactly why he wrote these words. He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so the Gospel of John is, It is a a firsthand witness account. Uh, John, being one of Jesus' 12 disciples, who for three or so years went from village to village, town to town, walking with Jesus, listening to his teaching, watching the miracles, and seeing God reveal his glory in his one and only Son. And so John provides us an eyewitness account, but not only that, he incorporates the eyewitness account and testimony of many other people who can testify to who Jesus is. And so throughout this book, we'll see various witnesses come forward and say, here's what I saw, here's what I heard, here's who Jesus is. And the first person on the docket, besides John the evangelist, who's writing this book, is a guy named John, which is gonna get really confusing because we got three J names, we got Jesus, we got John the evangelist or the apostle, we've got John the baptizer. So it's likely that I'm gonna scramble some of these words up. So just, I hope you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Just a a little bit of a disclosure. But the first guy up on the docket sharing his own witness of who Jesus is, is this guy named, you might know him as John the Baptist. I'm gonna call him John the baptizer. And and with all love to my Baptist friends, whether maybe you're Baptist, I think that John the Baptizer would probably be more Presbyterian than Baptist, and I know they'd like to claim him, and so I'm going to claim him, uh, but anyway, uh, we're going to call him John the Baptizer, because that's what he did, uh, and actually, he was introduced to us um, back in the very beginning, the prologue of John, uh, John 1 verses six through 11. Let me show you just because this this is injected right away that John the Apostle is writing and he wants us to, to realize there's a guy named John the Baptist. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John and he came as a witness, right? Here's this idea, the witness, we see more witnesses coming forward. This will be a theme throughout the whole book. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, what we're told is that John the Baptist, or John the baptizer, one of the things that he's doing to bear witness is, is baptizing people. Now, for us, if you've been around the church, baptism is a pretty common idea. In fact, it's, it's the entryway into the church, through, whether it's you're baptized as an infant or you come from a home that, that was uh, not a Christian family, and you get baptized as a first-generation Christian. It's an entry point into the church. So it's familiar for us, but in the first century, actually in first century pre-church era, uh, it was a little bit different. It was baptism was a familiar concept, but an uncommon practice. So here in in the church age, familiar concept, common practice. In the pre-church age, familiar concept, uncommon practice. And one of the things that made it a familiar idea was that it had ties back to the Exodus story. That when God was delivering his people from Egyptian slavery, he brought them through the Red Sea. They passed through the waters. And what Paul tells us uh, is that this is a, a sort of a baptism where God was marking his people. He was delivering them from slavery and bringing them into a new place so they could serve God fully. So there's one of the beginning points of that. And then as we move deeper into the temple and tabernacle era, one of the things that, that is in the midst of the temple is this giant water basin. And this water basin would serve as a way for the priests and the Levites to ceremonially cleanse themselves. So this was a it was a symbolic washing. It was a ceremonial washing that we, would be applied to certain kinds of people. Um, and so it didn't make it. It was not a common practice that all of Jews would be baptized. Just for a designated group of Jews, that they would practice the ceremonial washing. But in addition to that group, there would be also these proselytes, these people who w- did not come from a Jewish background, who would come to faith because God is the God of the nations, and God would bring them into his family and to indicate this transfer of citizenship from being a citizen of the world to the citizen of, of the kingdom of heaven, they would apply this, uh, this marker of baptism that would mark them, that would signify that I've been washed, that I've been cleansed. There's something different about me now. And unlike our version of baptism, which is usually administrated by a a pastor or somebody who's actually baptizing this person in the water, uh, this early version of baptism would be a self-administered baptism. So it was something that was relatively private, um, something that would happen but wasn't commonplace, um, and so what we see with John as he comes baptizing is something totally different, where John is the one actually baptizing, and he's, he's talking about this baptism being a different kind of baptism than anything that's happened before. And so this sets John apart here as we begin interacting with him in John's, John's gospel, all right, John and John, all right. Um, now, one of the things that in my studies, what I've realized today was, or not today, but this past week, uh, was that John the Baptist is, is often overlooked by Christians. Um, in fact, one commentator um, said that John the Baptist might be the most overlooked and neglected of the Christian heroes of the faith that we have, that we have something to learn from. And, um, Which is strange because John the Baptist makes an appearance in every single one of the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Everyone mentions John, and usually it's a pretty substantial mention of John. In fact, in John the Apostle's gospel, we'll see him pop up a couple times. Um, And so it's kind of strange that as often as he pops up, Christians don't talk about him that often, but I'm convinced that John the Baptizer would be okay with that. I think John the Baptist would be okay with us not talking about him. And as we move on, we'll we'll see why that's the case. But but I think that God wants us to actually look at him. Because God has put him in his word, in four different gospel accounts, that our Lord Jesus wants us to look at John the Baptist and learn something from him. And so today, what we're going to do... Um, we're going to look in four directions. We're going to look at, the, at John the Baptist. We're going to look at him, examine his character and how he carried himself and his role in, in his ministry, what that all entailed. And then we're going to look past John the Baptist because as, as great of a man as John the Baptizer was, uh, he made it very clear that he was pointing to someone who was far greater than he. And as we look at John and look past John, Not only will we see an extraordinary man who is carrying out this extraordinary mission, what I want to do is show you that if you believe John the baptizer's witness, this message that he proclaims, that God intends to make you and me like John the baptizer. So that's going to cause us to look in. We're going to examine ourselves. So we're going to look at, we're going to look past, we're going to look in. And as we look in, we're going to also realize that God wants us to look out. So at, past, in, out, is how we're going to look today as God commissions us to carry out the same mission of John the Baptist in the Quad City. So that's a bit of the uh, uh, framework for today. Let's start by looking at John the Baptizer. Now this is something that many, many first century Jews... Would be doing. Um, We're told in other gospel accounts that people from all over the place, from from Judea, from Jerusalem, are coming in to see this guy named John the Baptist, who's working out in the wilderness, proclaiming uh, a message, baptizing people in the water, and on on top of all of that, he's kind of a strange guy. All right, he's John doesn't talk about in his gospel. We're we're told that um, John the Baptist wears camel hair clothes. Um, which makes you wonder, how do you acquire enough camel hair to make clothes? I don't know. But he's wearing them, um, and he's out there. He's eating bugs, eating locusts, um, and then he's just dunking people along the side of the Jordan River, which this whole phenomenon is just bizarre. I mean, just, could you imagine if we had somebody posted up uh, on the Mississippi River doing the same thing? Camel hair, eating grasshoppers, dunking people. It would, it's, probably, it's likely going to happen down in New Boston, but... <laughs> It's just to be a strange thing. People come and check it out. What's going on? All right. Um, so people are, are, are intrigued because John the Baptist is creating a lot of commotion. And, and with all this commotion, we see these priests and Levites, uh, people who are part of the religious order, come and ask the question of John, who are you? Who, who are you, dude? And um, not only are they... Have their interest piqued by the bizarreness of John the Baptist, but they're actually interested in who this guy is and and about his message and by who sent him, because as John the Baptist is ministering to these people out in the wilderness, what he's doing, what he's saying, is playing on a lot of messianic expectations of these uh, of these Jews in this era. And what I mean by that is there's been a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament that testifies that there's going to be a Christ figure a Messiah, an anointed one who's going to enter in, whether he's, he's a king or a prophet or a priest, he's gonna step into the world and he's gonna work to deliver God's people. And so they see John the Baptist And they ask him, who are you? Are you this Christ? And that's what they're implying uh, because he's playing on these messianic expectations. Yet John vehemently denies that he is the Christ. In fact, it might even seem strange that when they ask, who are you, his first response is this, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So he's trying to make it very clear. He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they're like, all right, well, then who are you? And, and actually, one of the things that is really clear, even in that opening prologue passage that I read to you, is that John knows who he is. He, he's not the Christ, he's not the light of the world, but he's the one who's been sent to bear witness to the light of the world, the one to prepare the way for the light of the world. And so as he says, I'm not the Christ, in verse 21, They ask John, again, if you're not the Christ, then are you Elijah? Are you you the prophet that we've been waiting for? Because really, um, he fits the bill. John the Baptist, there's great similarity between what we see um, documented about Elijah also wearing camel clothes and out in the wilderness and eating bugs. And so they look at John and says, you bear striking resemblance of this guy named Elijah. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet that, they're, that, you're, that we've been waiting for to prepare the way. Now, this would be a legit question. This would be a, a, lit, a legitimate question from these religious leaders because the Old Testament, the very last book of the Old Testament, ends with the prophecy of a servant who's going to come as a predecessor to the Messiah. Let, let me take you to Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It'll be up here on the screen. Now, listen to this this is a prophecy. Um, God's saying here, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek suddenly will, will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you will delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But that's not the only place that mentions this. If you go further into, I mean, this is literally the last sentence of the last book of the Old Testament. and says this, Behold, I will send you, who? Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers toward the children, and the hearts of the children toward their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we see here, the very last pages of the Old Testament, there is this expectation that a messenger would come, and would come resembling Elijah. And so they ask, Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet that we've been waiting for? And John the Baptist denies being Elijah. He says, I am not the prophet. To which they ask then in verse 25 of John 1, take a look here. It says, Then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. So they're asking, On whose authority are you baptizing? Who has sent you to do this? Why, why are you doing this? And still, we haven't answered this question of, who the heck are you? Well, in verse 33, John the baptizer clarifies, he, as is also clarified in the beginning of the prologue, is that he is the one who's been sent by God as a fulfillment of the prophecy as this messenger who would come before them. In fact, when John quotes um, Who he is, he says in in Isaiah 40, he's quoting Isaiah 43. He says, I'm just a voice in the wilderness. Take a look at this. It's in, um, where am I looking at? Um, He says it in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. And this the imagery of this passage that he's, he's invoking here is that to make straight the path of the way of the Lord has this idea, it, talking about uh, toppling the mountains and filling up the valleys and the rough places becoming smooth so the Lord's highway could be laid out and the way of the Lord could be established. And so, John the Baptist is invoking all of this prophetic uh, imagery and he's telling the people that, that that are there around him that he's there as a messenger telling them to get right with God, to prepare the way of the Lord. And as he says, this is my vocation, this is the calling that God has put on me, it's almost as if he, he answers this question by saying, listen, I know you want to know who I am, but you're not asking the right question. I know you want to know who I am and what I'm doing out here in the wilderness, but you are not asking the right question because I'm not that important, but the one who comes after me, he is. The one that I bear witness to, he's the one that you should be asking about. Now, what we see when we look at John the Baptizer is we see a man of genuine humility, like legit humility. He's not proud, he's not boastful, and he very much knows that he's been called to a specific and special task. He knows that. Like nobody else has been given this role that he has to baptize people to announce the arrival of the kingdom. Yet he doesn't grasp for honor. He doesn't try to invoke some sort of self-importance and try to get other people to buy in that he's he's really this top-notch guy that everybody should be you know groveling at because he's so great. Even though John the baptizer occupies honorable office, he says, "Listen, I, I'm not I'm not that special." Now, what's a lot of times people come to this when when John the baptist John the baptist. Um, denies being Elijah. Um, In other gospels, actually Jesus in Matthew 11 says that John the Baptist is Elijah. Not in the the literal sense, not like Elijah reincarnate, but but John the Baptist functioning in the role, in in this messenger role, preceding the Messiah. That is him. And Jesus tells us that there is none greater born of women than John the Baptist. That's, that's a top-notch guy. That when the the Lord Jesus Christ Himself can look at a guy, He's like nobody greater than him. Special, stand-out dude. But John the Baptist, he doesn't think so highly of himself. He he, he doesn't puff himself up as he could. And you see this in verse twenty-six and twenty-seven, where he says. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, the role of washing feet um, in first century, that, that region, um, would be reserved for servants, the, the lowliest of servants, um, they're wearing sandals all the time. They're walking through the streets. There's just all kinds of crud in the streets. It's just, your feet get dirty, okay? Uh, everybody. They're not wearing Jordans or whatever. They're not wearing Crocs. Actually, if you wear Crocs, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're getting dirty. But because they wear sandals, Jesus has, you know, the, um, anybody in that time frame, their feet have to be washed regularly, and it, it would be the lowliest of servants who would untie the sandals and wash their master's feet. But John the baptizer says, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not worthy to do a, a slave's job. What we're seeing here, like, you might think initially, like, come on, John, you're selling yourself short. But, but what this really is, is, is John the Baptist exuding true humility. Humility. Now, we have to realize that this is not a phony humility. This is not the kind of humility that's self-loathing, that's self-deprecating. John's not saying this stuff so you look at him and feel bad for him. He's like, come on, John, you're really not that bad of a guy. Pat, pat, pat on the back, right, and send him off. You're an all-star, whatever. He's, he's not trying to, to lay out all of these negative things or view himself so lowly that he gets people to feel bad for him and then try to boost his self-esteem. That, that is a version of false humility. The kind of humility that just is uh, self-depreciating, that's always, you know, woe is me, that's not true humility. That kind of false humility is actually a form of pride. It's the underbelly of pride. Now, pride is not always this boastful, you know, look at me, I'm so great attitude. Pride is pride because it is an inflation of self-importance and self-focus. Pride is, my eyes are always on me. I'm the center of the universe. I'm the one that, you know, always talking about myself, always looking get other people to think about me. That's what pride is. And John the Baptist demonstrates something completely contrary to pride. He shows us real humility, which is a kind of self-forgetfulness. The ability to be fully present, to be yourself, and not have to think about yourself at all times. Now, one of the common misconceptions, and it's an unfortunate one, about humility is that if you're a humble person, you're a pushover. That if you're a humble person, and this is one of the things that, that pops up all the time. I see this in like the, the, the way that if evangelicals speak about humility, is that to be humble is to not have a backbone. To be humble is to be timid and just let everybody say things and you just sort of go along with the flow. But true humility is not that. True humility actually gives you a backbone. True humility actually makes you courageous. True humility makes you bold. Because you know that you are under the authority of another who is superior to you. You're freed from trying to establish yourself as this great person, or tr- you're freed from trying to, to you know, get everybody to feel sorry for you by being, you know, self um, just miserating. Real humility gives you courage. John the Baptist demonstrates this more than anybody else that I know. I mean, besides Jesus, besides the Lord, this courage and humility. Now, we see this because when John is doing his ministry, he's not thinking about himself. And it's because he wasn't thinking about himself, but the one who comes after him, the one who he's witnessing about, he is free to boldly fill his assignment. He's not thinking about how weird he looks wearing camel hair or chewing on bugs He knows I have a task that I've been assigned to. I'm going to do it. I have no fear of man. I fear God, and I'm going to do what he has appointed me to do. And because he feared God, and he knew he was a servant of the Lord, and his task was to proclaim the truth, John embodied true humility and courage as he faced some of the, the elites of his day, kings and rulers and religious leaders. John stood up full of humility and courage, and he spoke the truth to them. He didn't bow. He didn't bend. He didn't kowtow to the wishes of, uh, of the, the culture. John spoke truthfully and boldly. Now, this is what I, I would, this is what I would call biblical humility. Biblical humility is truth proclaiming self-forgetfulness. Truth proclaiming self-forgetfulness. Because you're not pointing to yourself, you're pointing to the way, the truth, and the life. You're pointing to Jesus as John the Baptizer does. And what the church needs more of desperately is men and women who can embody this humility and courage and proclaim truth. Because John the Baptizer had true humility. He said, don't look at me, look past me. Don't don't look at me. I'm not that great of a guy when you put me next to the one who I bear witness about. He's the real deal. Look past me. He says, I'm just a voice clearing the way so the, Lord of, the, the glory of the Lord is seen. That, that's actually, if you go back in, into um, Isaiah 40, verse six, the whole reason this messenger is here is to, to show, to reveal the glory of the Lord. And John the Baptist says, I'm not, I'm not here so you see my glory. I'm here so you see the glory of the Lord. And so the next day, as the passage progresses in verse 29, the next day we see Jesus coming toward John the baptizer and John the baptizer says to him, actually says aloud, it's to him and for everybody else who's listening. He says, behold the Lamb of God. Now this is interesting because in those passages that I, I read to you earlier from Malachi um, 3.1 and, and the last verse of chapter four, both of those start out with this announcement of behold. This this is a, um, this is a, a literary technique. This is, this is a word that's used to make sure people's attention is grasped. It's like, take, take note of this. Put your eyes on this. Pay attention to this. Behold. And John the baptizer comes along and says, listen, I, what I want you to do is behold this other guy. Behold the lamb of of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, Look past me and look to the Lamb of God. Now, not only do we have John the Baptizer testifying to who Jesus is, we see later on in verse 32 through 34 um, is that the Holy Spirit is also making testimony of who Jesus is. Look at this in verse 30, 32. And John bore witness. Here he is witnessing, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Now this is a special thing. So um, if you go back to like David or Solomon, like there's this idea of the spirit of God coming to rest on people momentarily. And if they screw up bad enough, the spirit of God departs. Like that was the case of of, uh, Saul, the the predecessor to David, spirit of God rested upon him. Then he went sinning, didn't repent. Spirit of God was lifted. But here, John says, not only did the Spirit of God descend from heaven, it remained on him; it did not depart. I myself did not know him. Now, he doesn't mean that literally, because John, John the Baptist, and Jesus were cousins, so or you know, second cousins or something like that. Um, he didn't know that Jesus was actually the Messiah yet, until this moment, until he saw the Spirit descend on him and remain. On whom, uh, he said, I did not know him, but he who has sent me to baptize with water said to me. So God is saying to to John the Baptist, he says, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll, we'll have plenty of time to talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit later on. But then John says, and I have seen and I bear witness that this is the Son of God. So here we have two really important announcements of who Jesus is. First, we see John bearing witness that Jesus is the Son of God there at the very end in verse 34, and that he is the Lamb of God in verse 29. Now, the Lamb of God is a unique title. Um, It's a title that only John the Apostle uses. You'll only find the title the Lamb of God or speaking about the Lamb in John's gospel and in the book of Revelation, which he wrote both of those. It's a unique title that only he uses, but it actually is full of Old Testament allusions, right? Speaking, he, he's pulling these threads from the Old Testament and sort of winding them together, bringing them all together, and to, to use this, this passage. So he says, Lamb of God. If, if you're a Jew, one of the first things when you hear any talk about a lamb is you think about the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that was in Exodus chapter 12, um, and this is something that happened while they were leaving uh, Egyptian slavery, where they take the blood of a lamb, they put it on the doorpost, the angel of the Lord will pass over them, and that is actually what led to the deliverance out of Egypt, that it was that moment that the firstborn sons of Egypt were struck down, and it was the sons of the Jews who had the blood painted over their door frames that were spared. So it was, it was the blood of the lamb that was offered instead of the blood of the firstborn son. And this is a, a celebration that would be celebrated yearly. So if you're a Jew, this is always in the back of your mind. The Passover, the Passover. What does this mean? The lamb whose blood was slain or shed and applied on the, the doorpost as a substitutionary death. So that's, that's one of the first layers. The next layers of using this Uh, the Lamb of God would be um, thinking of, of a, it would have sacrificial overtones because what happens when he says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? So what this means is a sacrifice that offers some kind of atonement. What would happen in the sacrificial system is that the, the Levites or the priests would, would confess the sins of the people, put their hands on these animals, and, and there would be a transfer of guiltiness from the people of God onto these animals. And these animals, their blood would, be, would pay the price for their sins. As we're told, the wages of sin is death. And so it was this animal that was killed, Uh, the sin transferred to the animal, uh, it was killed in their place, again, a substitutionary death that would pay for, that would atone for, that would remove sin from God's people. So we have an atoning substitutionary sacrifice that removed their sin. But there's another layer, and I think this is what What John really wants us to see, I mean, all of these things contribute and compile, but what I I really think John, in using these terms, John really wants us to see um, is is this episode that happens in Genesis 22. By using using the title, the Lamb of God and the Son of God, this story that we'll see here um, combines the two. This is the story of, of Isaac and his father Abraham, i got to find my spot here. Um, God called Abraham out of a pagan life. He said, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your land. I'm going to bring you to a new place. I'm going to give you a massive family. I'm going to bless you, and through you, the world would be blessed. Now, Abraham and, and his wife, Sarah, had a child really late in life. I mean, he was like 100 years old. Really late in life. This promise, it took a long time. It felt forever for God to deliver on this promise. But God tested the faith of Abraham by saying to him, listen, Abraham, I I want you to know if you really trust me. And the way that that you're going to, and this story wrecks me every time I I spend time thinking about it, but the way that I'm going to test your faith is I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your only son. I'm going to ask you to lay him on the altar and to take his life. And Abraham, f- full of faith, saddles up his donkey, climbs up a mountain, and as they're trekking up, his son Isaac says to him, hey, Dad, um, I realize we're about to go offer sacrifice, and I see the wood, and I see the fire, but where is the animal? Where's the sacrifice? What's the thing that's going to die on the altar? And, and what Abraham says to him is that, Son, God will provide. Now he said that knowing, he he said that knowing that God wanted him to put his son on the altar, and Abraham does. Abraham takes his son, he lays down the wood, he places his son on the wood, and just as he's go lifting up his 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 knife in his hand, an angel of the Lord stops. Let me let me read this. Um, this is Genesis twenty two verse nine. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up to the God as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide as it is said on this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. In The moment when Abraham's about to offer up his son, God says, stop. I've got a substitute for you. Take this lamb, take this ram that is caught in the thicket, and let him take the place of your son. Now, one of the ways that Christianity is completely different than other pagan religions is that never again does god ask for the life of a child the pagan gods the pagan religions of the early world and even i would even say the pagan religions of our day claim make claims for the blood of innocent ones but never again does god ask for a child's life in fact god commands his people later on As you move through Deuteronomy, Exodus, he commands God's people, the Jews, to protect the life of children. As God's people, we are to protect the life of children. Abortion, uh, working to abolish abortion in our state, in our country, is part of our Christian duty, to protect the life of our own children and the children of our society. And not only to protect life, but to raise our children as Ephesians Six And Deuteronomy 6 tells us in the padilla, in the enculturation, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We are supposed to train our children to know God, to love him, and to serve him. And in this, our children have life. Now, in bringing all these things together, there was a sidebar, sorry. Um, to bring it back to the text. In bringing these things together, I'm not sorry actually about that sidebar. In bringing all these things together, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the allusions to the Passover Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb, um, the, 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 the Son who is spared. John the Baptist is wanting us to See Jesus as the fulfillment of all these things, as the Son of God and the Lamb of God who was slain. That Jesus is the Passover substitute. That that we, by faith, can be spared from death on account of Jesus' sacrifice. On account of Jesus' sacrifice, he is the sacrifice who atones for, who removes sin and guilt from us. As God's special son, Jesus is not withheld. In fact, he is the lamb who has continued to stay on the altar. He was, listen to this, to lay lay Isaac on the wood of the altar, God laid his own son, Jesus Christ, on the wood of the cross. God gave up his own special son so that through him, more children would be adopted into his family. And by taking away the sins of the world, by believing in Jesus through the gift of faith that God gives, that we would have adoption. Now, now this is where where I want to invite you to look in, to look in what's going on. Because we we see Jesus as the Lamb of God who is... uh, who, was, who, who takes away the sins of the world, and it might be easy for us to say, well, yeah, sure, God, God did that for a bunch of other people, but there's no way he would do it for me. I'm too bad. You don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did 10 years ago. I am dirty. I am vile. My sin is just so stuck on me that I don't think there's any way that the Lord Jesus Christ could remove my sin from me. It just seems too intertwined into my life. But here's the reality that Jesus came to die for your sin. Jesus laid down his life for yours. Now, I I wanna be very clear about something that Jesus didn't come and die for you to, to feel better about yourself. Jesus came and died to reveal the glory of God in salvation that you would see the gracious and steadfast love of God, that you would see the God who we profess this morning, who is slow to anger, who does not deal with us according to our iniquity. Why? Because Jesus dealt with them. Jesus took care of our sin. All of our sin, past, present, and future, were placed on Jesus on the cross. And in that moment, the wrath of God is absorbed there, there's none left for you to pay. It doesn't, it's, like, it's not like you go to dinner with Jesus and he's like, you know what? I'll pay for 80% of the tab if you can handle the other 20% in the tip. Jesus is like, I got it all. It was all placed on Jesus. He absorbed the wrath of God. He paid for sin. And as he did so on the cross, he was pushed out. He was despised so that you could be brought into God's family. He was the one and only, the the unique son of God who was turned away so that you could be brought in, so that you could have life in him and through Jesus Christ. And the only way that this occurs, it's not by showing God that, that you're actually worthy of his forgiveness or his love. The only way that you can access this is by faith. And faith comes by hearing. Now, if you believe If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, even your sin, this changes everything. This is a game changer. This means for you, you stand justified. In the eyes of God right now, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're not defined by your sin. You're not defined even by your own successes. You're defined by the perfection of Jesus Christ. And and though God looks at us through the blood of Christ, there's this real sense that that we are not not projects that have been completed. We all have sin that lingers. Even though though we receive the gift of grace through faith, we believe, we know that we've been saved, we've been delivered, we've been justified by Christ, there's still this sanctification that takes place. This act of becoming more of who you are, of, of acting according to our God-given nature as redeemed sons and daughters of the king. And in this process of sanctification, which is a lifelong act, this is a a process where God is little by little removing sin and your desire for sin from you and replacing it with desires for God, desires to do good. Now, this, this process of sanctification, this is Jesus changing you. This is not you figuring out your life. This is not you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. This is Jesus changing you in real time. And one of the things that Jesus works on us with as he changes us is that we become humble and bold. We become humble in the sense that I can confess my sin. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to pretend like it doesn't exist. I don't, have to, I don't have to work to boost my resume so that people will like me and God might accept me. I, I can be who I am and not have to focus on me because I'm pointing to the one who paid the price for my sin. But in that, it doesn't mean that we're like looking down at our feet all ashamed. No, 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 we're told that we in Christ are more than conquerors. We have this confidence, this boldness. There is a, a gospel swagger that we have. And in this bold humility, God turns us into missionaries. So we look at John, we look past John, we look in at ourselves, and now God wants us to look out past ourselves too. He wants us to be like John the Baptist in the sense that we too become witnesses to Jesus Christ. That we proclaim who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, so others would hear and believe. Now, we can look at John... And say, man, that guy did a great job. He did a great work. And we can look at John all day and he can inspire us for this work. But only Jesus can produce this in our lives. John the Baptist can't produce this kind of change. It's only Jesus who changes us into that kind of man or woman. Now, as I it down here, I'm sorry, this was, I was so excited to preach this sermon. I thought I was gonna be nice and concise and I just keep going and I love it, but... Sorry, not sorry. But here's the thing. Jesus wants to accomplish this in our lives. Through the gospel, bold humility. Through the gospel, testifying to the work of Jesus Christ. Yet oftentimes, Christians are proud cowards. Oftentimes, Christians are proud cowards who fail at mission. And and honestly, I could stand up here as a chief of sinners. We're proud in the sense where when we go to talk about Jesus, you end up talking about yourself more. You, you tell people, man, I got my life together. I just made some good choices. I tried hard. You know, Jesus gave me the extra nudge over the, you know, the hump. But really in this, you're the hero, right? You're the one who, who got you to the place where you're at. And people hear that, and they say, man, I could never do that. There's no way. There's no way I could get myself to that position. But it's true. You can't. You, you can't do that. And they can't do that. And neither did you. You didn't do that for yourself. If you're truly a Christian, it was Jesus who took the action. It's Jesus who brought you to that spot. And in this case, if you're trying to talk about Jesus and talk more about yourself, what you're doing is you're bearing false witness about yourself, and It's repulsive to other people. You're not really talking about Jesus. Now, that that may not be the most common way that Christians fail at living into this this identity as missionaries. Um, What I do think is the most common way that that Christians fail at this is, is more of the cowardly form of pride. Here's what I mean. Even though you're not talking about yourself, you're thinking about yourself. That Because you don't want to be seen as weird, because you don't want to be uncomfortable when you open up a conversation about Jesus, you just don't. You're trying to protect your own comfort. You're trying to to maintain the thing that you want. You're just thinking about yourself. And in this moment, you lack the self-forgetfulness that humility produces, And and in that, you're thinking about yourself so much that you neglect the deepest need of other people. What people need more than anything is to hear the message, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Rather than having a deep love for God and neighbor, this cowardly pride is motivated by a shallow love of self. Instead of being moved by deep gospel joy, which... Leslie Newbegin talks about like mission is really um, radioactive fallout of joy. That the joy we receive in Christ, you just can't help it, just oozes out into the world. Instead of being moved by deep gospel joy, we are frozen by fear or duty. Where we ought to stand up and boldly proclaim the truth, we sit back and we let liars run their mouth. Now, without men and women who imitate John the Baptist, this true gospel humility and gospel courage, our city will suffer. Without humble truth speakers, our city will deteriorate. God is raising up men and women to boldly proclaim the truth, to not to point to themselves, but point to the one is greater than us. And and one of the the amazing things about the gospel is the gospel isn't just for us to get us to become Christians. The gospel is for us as Christians, because as Christians, we still have a need to confess our sin, specifically our failures as missionaries, especially the times where we bow at the idols of, of comfort or fear or fear of man. The gospel enables us to to be self-forgetful in the sense that, that we turn from our own failures, we confess them while looking to Jesus Christ. And we remember that we are saved by faith, not works. But in our salvation, we are saved for good works. And the more that we see Jesus as the Son of God, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the more that we see it and understand what he has done, the more you, Christian, will want to bear witness to the truth. See, if you have a problem being a missionary, it's probably not that you're you're too intimidated. It's, It's that you have not fully grasped the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ. You haven't been filled up with the joy of knowing the Lord in this deep and profound way that only Jesus gives you the ability to know. What this means is that we go back time and time again to remember the gospel, to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. And the more that we see Jesus as the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we will want to bear witness to the truth. We want to proclaim, like John, here's the one, behold Jesus. In fact, this is one of the things that the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 is that we become ambassadors for Christ, that God is making an appeal through us. God desires to be known, even by the people who do not yet know him, God wants to be known, and so he uses his people to proclaim, to bear witness, so that more people can receive the good news of grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that more people would see Jesus as the Lamb of God, and as we see the Lamb of God, we see the Lamb triumphant, the lamb victorious, the lamb who overcame death in revelation, where the glory of God radiates from the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you need to become a better missionary, look to Jesus. Go back to the gospel. And every Sunday we have the opportunity in a very profound way to see how these elements testify to what Jesus has done that his body was broken for sinners his blood was shed to atone for our sins that Jesus paid the price for everything that we the good that we failed to do and the bad that we did Jesus pays for this he atones for our sin and by his blood we are sanctified and it's by this meal that the Lord strengthens us to go back out and in humility and boldness proclaim the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this meal and how you are present in it. We thank you for how you have called us just ordinary nobodies to be part of your mission and advancing your kingdom by proclaiming your gospel. Help us. Lord, develop in us this deep humility and boldness that only the gospel can produce in our lives. Only Jesus can bring this about. We cling to him as our founder and perfecter of our faith, who laid down his life for us, our substitute, our sacrifice, the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. And it's your name we pray, amen.